0: Thanks for choosing this podcast New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church. we go.
1: to Uh, <laughs> just do a couple, at least.
2: Pitch it, pitch Are men willing to encourage contacts with new men or outside men, please? c 20 see 28 for the, the team leader. If you are a volunteer willing to deliver long-on-date deliver along products for the pantry before both bad case, see your Joe, this would be an on-call opportunity. Let me know when you are available. Please make sure to fill out your questionnaire if you are a member and return to Pastor Dan. Please register for West Every Home to pray for people in your neighborhood and the church. Pastor Dan can send you the registration link. There are also paper slips in the back of the sanctuary with instructions.
3: Okay. We you're able to hear the sermon, listen to it on the podcast. Okay, that's good.
1: It's
3: all good. There's a link to the podcast. Thank you, Jane. All right. All right. And um, speaking of Bless Every Poem, uh, who, we, who we will be praying uh, for today includes Juanita Henley, Tina Parker, Linda and Jackie Osborne, Ronnie Lynch, and Jana Collins. All, on. nope, don't know where uh, uh,
0: Yep. On Kelsey Avenue. Yep. Uh, okay. Almost to the end of Kelsey. Get there. Right. Kelsey. Look at them on. All right. And
3: Alicia, as you're welcome back, will you open us up in prayer? Yes. <laughs> 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 I forgot to do that.
2: Oh, <laughs> Real quick, after service today, and I know the pantry will be going on, so we'll try to like be helpful with that also, but I'm having a team meeting to go over the missions calendar for the year. I have multiple mission ideas. We just need to place them out in the calendar so we can start planning for those. So anyone, that, even if you're not on my team, because my team consists of my sister and my husband, um, please stay if you would like to help plan the missions for the year. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for bringing us here from our lives. All of us have lives at home that we live out to the best of our ability, Lord. And I hope we do that for you and we come together collectively to worship you um, and to learn from you. Um, I'd like to pray for our neighbors today, the ones that are in our area close by. Um, We hope that they know you, that they have the opportunity to do that. Um, we'd love to invite them to come and join us, and we have done that. Um, reach out to them. Um, Lord, fill our neighbors with the desire to experience your goodness as they take refuge in you. Yes. Taste and see that you are good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge refuge in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs>
4: Oh, yeah. Okay.
0: Good morning. Good morning. I hope you've been inspired in some way this week. Uh, I had a couple of interesting experiences myself, and so I'm always very interested to hear how you've heard from the Word, what you've seen, what you've done. Where did God say, hey, pay attention to that? And that's what this is all about. It's not a time that I lead, but a time that the Lord leads. And I hope that you've uh, looked for His leading this week, and I hope that you've been able to find it and see it and see some amazing things happen, some things that maybe are quizzical. Ah, maybe that's something you saw this week and made you go, hmm. But you don't know what the end of that is, and maybe somebody else here would want to chime in and say, "I think maybe the Lord would want us to hear that out of that. Maybe that's that kind of thing we need to do." So that's what this time is about. So, what have you done? What have you seen? What have you heard? Let's go, Michael Brisker. We got to
5: look outside soon. We got snow warriors. Uh, it happened to be, uh, Been talking to, talk to that is. Want to be busy? It just so happened. Lord seems good to keep me busy Monday through Friday in school. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with that come challenges, which I, I prayed for challenges, and then I'd be able to overcome them in a way that would be honoring to Him. That being said, I got stuck about three times. Uh, twice here at the church, and one uh, guy from the last said, Church, and I got stuck there, and that was probably the worst time I stuck. And uh, today we got some help out there, I'm praying to please help me get out. And basically, whatever, I buried, the, I buried the cloud. The truck itself wasn't stuck, the cloud was stuck. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was praying, we were working, digging it out, and whatnot. It took about 45 minutes or so. And I was finally able to get some wood up under the front tire. And we I thought we might be able to do something. I said, God, please just get me out of here. And uh, I didn't do all the signs I think. I stuck about three times. I didn't lose, I prayed, God, I didn't, I didn't lose my food. Instead, I just worked hard to, try to figure out how to get out. Anyway, I got out and was able to finish and was able to serve another church in do so. And, uh, but it's a good show. Ask God to help you through it. And he uh, sees see through, He sees through. And uh, I, I'm just thankful. Well, I didn't break nothing. And uh, was able to keep serving. And
0: I didn't lose my cool. So Michael's been asking for uh, God to keep him busy uh, serving. And that's why we got all the snow. That's what I heard you say. <laughs> so that's all your fault, brother. No, but praise God, you then use that for an opportunity to glorify him. And that and so that's worth it. What what I went through, I'm I'm so glad. Uh, I would have I would have prayed for five days of snow for you if I'd known it was gonna be that awesome. Praise
5: God. <laughs> Good stuff.
0: Alright, anybody else? Good stuff. Brother Frank. I've
3: been
0: uh reading this prayer
3: book and stuff, and there's a prayer that stuck out to me and I just wanted to share.
0: it. Absolutely, please do. It says... A-
3: Lord God Almighty, I pray you that nothing is impossible with you. Train us and lead us into extraordinary prayer. Help us throw off any sin, surrendering ourselves to you. May we see the needs of our city and nation the way you see them. Unite all believers in my church and community in extraordinary prayer. May we walk in love, free in heart and things, uniting earthen persistent
4: faith.
0: Bring the Bible and the spiritual awakening to our land. Be glorified through us all, O God. Amen. Sweet. Good stuff. So, um, I had an encouraging text this morning. Somebody out of the blue, and I didn't know who it was, asking me how they could listen to the podcast and watch the service. And it struck me that there's so much going on that we're doing some of what we've never done, had never done before. We've been podcasting for. Uh, we're at uh, 226 episodes, I think it is. 226 episodes, something like that, on the podcast, and and it's generally no more than two a week, and so at most. So you figure that is uh, about four years coming up. We'll be coming up in four years. We'll have been podcasting. That's a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, that means a lot of uh, worship to God that's out there for people to listen to and find a lot of messages. Some with quirky titles, some with stuff that probably no one will ever search for on Google, things like that. Um, but uh, we've had a lot of opportunity for God to move and work, and that was an encouragement to me. And then um, night before last, I was cleaning and I re-stumbled, I don't think that's actually a word, by the way. I just made that up. But anyway, restumbled on a song, uh, which is called uh, "Burn the Ships." Now, I'm not going to play the song for you, but I want to. Sh- I wanted to share with you something that happened. It was a very, it was unique for me, something I had never had happen before. And um, so I was cleaning, and I was going through some bins that are on our short-term storage shelves, and pulling things out, and just looking to see what was there, and throwing a bunch of stuff away. And I did throw probably four or five bin, smaller boxes of stuff away, um, stuff that we don't need anymore, or, or that isn't, it wasn't really reparable, it wasn't usable. Um, and then uh, I, was, I started playing the song. Uh, Burn the Ships, which is by um, King and Country, Christian band, Christian professing, right? And in the song, uh, there's a lyric where it says, burn the ships, and then it goes on to talk about, you know, flushing the drugs and getting rid of the things in your life that, that, so you can't go back. And I know historically, burn the ships is a saying that comes from when a king would go and invade another land, but it was something, and they would invade by ship, but it would be somewhat risky when the invasion was somewhat risky. And they might not succeed. They might take heavy losses and people might want to retreat. The king would order to burn the ships. And the idea is if you've burnt the ships, there is nowhere to retreat to, right? Now we're all in. And it occurred, it occurred to me uh, two things out of that. The first one was it went back to years and years and years ago. Brother Ross, I out of the room for a one. I think he took a work call, but uh, he can hear this object lesson later. We were at a gaming convention in, uh, at that time it was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we were playing a pirate crew, and we charged onto the boat to take this ship, right? And we were maybe a little bit outmatched. They were, had a bigger crew than we did. And um, Brother Ron was playing the bosun, which is the bosun in the pirate days, and sailing days was the guy with the biggest mouth, basically. And so very loud. And so we are trying to demoralize the troops, and Brother y- brother. Further Ron yells in character mind you he yells Take no prisoners, no surrender it
1: care,
0: no. about the enemy troops. And instead of having the effect of them wanting to surrender or quitting fighting, they immediately went, Uh oh, they're not gonna take any prisoners, so they started fighting a lot harder. So I was as I was cleaning and I was listening to that song, I was thinking about that, I, I was thinking about you realize as Christians there is no surrender. So we talk about surrendering to God, surrendering something to God, giving God over control, right? And that's what being a Christian is. We let God lead us, teach us, protect us, provide for us. We surrender the things that we can take into our own power, into his power, because that's so much better. But surrender isn't necessarily the right word. Surrender is a human way of expressing what we're doing spiritually, right? It's a mouth way of doing what's happening with your heart, like we've been talking about in our sermons, the circumcision of the heart. But the other thing that occurred to me at that same time was when it comes to being a Christian, there is now no surrender. You're in. You've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior if you indeed have, and you now will live for Jesus, with Jesus, with him in person, his Holy Spirit in you, do the things that you've committed to do for the rest of your life. Eternal life. Life beyond death, even. Right? So that's what it is. There's no going back. Jesus said it this way. He said, if a man should put his hand to the plow... And then look back, he is not fit for the kingdom of God, Jesus said. There is now no surrender. You don't want to look back at the things of your old life and yearn for them or whatever. And so I was thinking about as I kept as I heard that lyric, burn the ships. I was thinking about how that's what I did when I got saved. I said, there's just all this stuff that I want. It's all part of my personality. Whatever. I don't know what if it's good and what if it's bad. But I just said, Lord, I'm going to drop it all in favor of this one thing, unity with you. That I could be yours. And I put it all behind me. And then, uh, you know, some of it, God said, no, you take take this. This is good. Keep that. Use that for my glory. And things like that. But most of it, in all truth, most of what I was and the way I acted and stuff, it all was on the ships. And the ships were burnt. I wasn't going back. And here's what's interesting. This is what never happened to me before. As I was playing Burn the Ships on my phone, I selected it and I left it sitting on the desk. Before the first song, before the first time played through, it was about three minutes and 14 seconds or something like that, but the first time played through, I had already moved stuff off of the shelves between me and my phone. So I had no easy way to get back to my phone, and while, you know, you might be able to say, okay, whatever your phone's name is, and it will talk to you, mine, I don't do that. I don't have that set up on my phone. So I have no easy way to change the song. So for the next roughly hour, as I'm cleaning and going through bin after bin of stuff, finding all this stuff, and I found some cool stuff, with, myself like a hundred bucks one time and it was pretty, pretty fun. You know, sometimes going through your storage stuff can be very useful, but it, it's playing over and over again. And here's what happened. Every time they sang burn the Ships," which is part of the course. So it's like two times or three times in each song for an hour. Every time they said burn the ships, the Holy spirit in me went, there it is. Pay attention to that. Now the song is playing in the background. I like, you know, like music or something just playing right? I wasn't hearing most of the song. But every time they said burn the ships, the Holy Spirit went, there it is, pay attention to that, pay attention to that. And why did the Holy Spirit do that like a hundred times in an hour? Because that's part of the message of what the Holy Spirit is trying to get us to see and do and believe every day. It's not that he was saying, hey, there's something you haven't heard before. He was saying, hey, that's part of what I've been telling you. That's, that's, so like, if the message is God loves you, right? And you should be saying that all the time, by the way. Everywhere you go, get these words in your mouth. God loves you. And God bless you. Especially that one. Because if the person is unsaved, when you tell them God bless you, what is the blessing they need? Salvation. If the person is saved, you tell them God bless you, what is the blessing they need? And continue continuing to walk with Christ, right? So you should be saying God bless you everywhere you go. And every chance you get, somebody texts you, text them back God bless you. Every time you can, because... We need to ask God to bless this world because this world is not in a very good place. Okay? But that being said, if it's part of who you are, part of your message, then every time it comes up, you go, yep, yeah.
1: hmm yeah.
0: So uh, when we were kids, I'll, I'll close with this. When we were kids, um, there were certain sayings, or certain things that would come up, somebody would say it, and, and my dad or my mom or our family would always say the same things over and over again when that happened. It was part of who identified us, right? So, for example, if I said something like, I never stub my toe going through the living room, then I would go through the living room and stub my toe. And my dad would say, chickens always come home to roost. He's listening to this, he's probably, yeah, yeah I, I say, he still says that <laughs> to this day, right? So the point is, there were things that we would always do that were part of, It became part of who we are. It's time that we realize there are certain things that are part of who we are. Reaching new heights in Jesus. You understand that that's about growing a little bit every day, being more like Jesus every day, hearing from God. That's part of who we are. You should be using that phrase. Every time you see a text, every time you see it on Facebook, I was reading an article this morning, which I'm going to quote in my sermon. And the guy says, I hope that by learning a little bit more about this topic, you have reached new heights today. And the spirit of me went, oh, because it's reached new heights, right? I was online, and I was searching for something, and I bumped into New Heights Gymnastics, which is an actual gymnastics place. There's like several of them all across the country, right? And the spirit went, "Ah!" oh. That's it. You should get used to the things that are of the kingdom. And I'm not saying you've got to learn great big words like propitiation, sanctification, justification, gratification. Oh, that's not one, is it? That's a worldly word. But anyway, the point is, you don't have to learn what all those words mean, but what I'm saying is there are certain things about who Jesus is. If someone says go, and they're trying to tell you to go and do something, you should probably know that the word go occurs a few times in the New Testament. All right. Someone says love, they say, well, you don't love me because you say this or you do that. Or he tells me I have to do this because if I love him, I'll do it. You should know that that's not the kind of love that God is talking about, right? What they mean is control, lust, envy, jealousy, like that. So we should have certain things that we know that's part of what the Holy Spirit is teaching us all the time. And every time we come up, we should go, eh! You know, and I'm saying we have to start doing that, right? Um, don't be surprised if I do it a few times because that's what I felt like a hundred times at least when that song played over and over again I can't tell you most of the rest of the lyrics but I got that words ingrained in my brain baby you want to follow Jesus burn the ships. let's pray Father in heaven I'm blessed (laughs) having you as my God not even knowing all of what that means I'm blessed Having this life that you've given me full of people for me to love and people that I don't even know that I'm supposed to love. People whose names I've never learned, whose eyes I've never looked in. I can There's people on Facebook, for example, or on social media that will post something and I'm like, I don't even remember where I met that person or how I became friends with them on Facebook. Some of them are all over the country and they're a difficult spot. And there in me is the desire, and I'll send them a text and say, God loves you, and so do we. And I can say that with certainty. It's a real thing, because I know you are God, and you love us. And you love us when we would be, by all human standards, unlovable. You love the unborn. You love the not yet dying. And you have so loved all those who went before us that you sent your son, Jesus to foster a seed to Abraham that will last for eternity and we'll go to heaven and live with You. I know that we're living in difficult times. I'm asking You, Lord, please get the reins of our nation not in such a way that You would have to destroy or in such a way that um, tons and tons of people need to be punished. I, I'm not praying for punishment. I'm praying for grace. Lord, get the reins of our church. That there is someone here today who claims that he or she is the church and they are not submitting to you, Lord, then get the reins of their heart. And again, I'm not praying for punishment. I'm not praying for chastisement. I'm praying for grace. And I believe that chastisement and punishment by you is grace. It's part of it. Lord, I thank you for the sacrifice that you made. Everything we have, every penny, every moment, every word, every action, every flexing of every muscle, every replication of every cell, every breath we take in, every moment praying along with some guy who's too long-winded, Lord, it's all yours. And we ask you to use it to glorify yourself. We ask you to help us praise you with these last few songs. We ask to help us praise you with our gifts of our tithes and offerings. we know the tithe is not really a gift. It's your money anyway. It's all your money, 100%. And we just ask you, Lord, to use it as you see fit. I thank you that there are people all over the world having the opportunity to listen to our podcast, stumble on topics about Jesus, about the Word, about the Bible, about the Holy Spirit, about what it means to reach new heights in Jesus. I thank you there are people, strangers, completely unknown, that will reach out and say, how do I watch? How do I listen? And I thank you that there are lists, dozens long, of people in the Toledo area who say that they're looking for a new church home. And I see that the fields are white unto the harvest. And I pray that you will send your workers, and I know that that probably means you'll send us. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful because you are my God. Even though I don't always know what that means. Bless us as you see fit, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
4: I think I
1: think I did this.
3: Birthday, and uh, as I was thinking, I was like, Man, you know what? This guy does lots of crazy things, and I have lots of crazy memories with him. So I started thinking, What's something crazy that the church could give him for his birthday? So, Rapid Weasels. Dan, what?
5: Rapid Weasels. <laughs> No.
3: So uh, Pastor Dan, I forgot to wrap your present. So um in like tradition of uh, MacGyvering, as we sometimes do. Um this is a trash bag wrapping gift and it, and it smells really good, so you know if you want to save it. So on behalf of Memite Scholarship, we have a good present much. and a card for you. Thank Enjoy. Thank
5: you. Thank you. Amen. For
0: a minute, I thought you were just gonna rub it in, but now I got a gift. <laughs> Praise God. Thank I'm you. Thank
3: you for this.
4: I'm finding myself at a loss for words Last thing I need is to hear or to hear what you would say.
0: Once again, as I've been studying this sermon series, which uh, that felt like the Lord laid on my heart um, a few weeks back, I have since realized that every single one of these sermons could be at length like a book for me. Um, and so, uh, that it's been challenging for me, as you may have seen last week, to sort of uh, boil it down into something that I could bring to you and make sure, and try to make sure I do a good job with it. So. That does not change today, so I'm asking you uh, to be a part and have your thinking caps on as uh, we, uh, we're going to do a quick survey of where we've been. Um, largely, last we've been following the circumcision of the heart, okay? and we started out with the uh, understanding that the, the circumcision is not of a physical part of your body, but rather of your internal being, and that that is what makes us a Christian, and we become alive the moment we're born again, get circumcision of the heart. At that point in time, and begin living for the Lord. We followed that logic through to the end last week of a key point, which was that the Holy Spirit who is now in us, if you have been saved, the Holy Spirit is in you. He is actively working to kill sin and wants you to actually be a part of that fight. And as we got to Romans 8, and we read the words that says, there is now therefore no more condemnation. Meaning now, since we've become Christians, there is no judgment, there is no going back, there is no, really no sin that changes anything about your condition uh, between you and God because of what we read in Romans 7, which was that you are an active part in the fight with the Holy Spirit to destroy sin. Okay? So because we are in the fight, and some days we may win or lose or the battle, r- battle rages forward and backwards and some days you do really well and some days you don't do as well and so on. But because of that, there is now therefore no more condemnation. All of this essentially is coming out of, up until this point anyway, I think we've got two left, and they don't necessarily specifically, as clearly come out of this verse, but all this has been coming out of Romans chapter 2, and in particular 2.29, which is our verse for today. So if you haven't done so already, maybe take a breath, hoot, holler, get excited, stomp your feet as we go to Romans 2.29.
4: Amen. a lot. All
0: right. Thank you. I heard one more stomper. I wasn't the only stomper. All right. So Romans 2.29 then was the, kind of the end of the discussion of what we're, we're summarizing everything we've been talking about, the circumcision of the heart, and 2.29 says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, and we talked about that, by the spirit, and we talked about that, not by the letter, actually that was last week's sermon, right? Spirit over letter. And then it says, and his praise is not from men, but from God. His praise is not from men, but from God, and that brings us to our sermon, if you will, for today. Okay, and so we're going to talk about how we've been freed. All right, because we've been freed through war, we've been freed through uh, the ending of a relationship. You may have been in a relationship with somebody, and they were a bad influence on you, and then you that you broke up. You might not even wanted to be broken up from them or separated from them, but from the moment that you were no longer with them. You were essentially freed, and so on. Uh, you, may, uh, you may have had a job that you were working at, and you thought, man, this is the greatest job in the world, and I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here, and I'm making good money, and whatever. And then all of a sudden, the job was taken from you, and then you went and got on to looking for a new job, found a new job, and realized that your old job that you thought was the greatest job in the world wasn't the greatest job in the world. It was really sort of just holding you back from the greatest job in the world. So we get freed when things in our lives change, and these verses are talking about how we get freed. Listen to what he says. He says, "Now his praise is not from men, but from God." And so the very first thing that you can see, I think, clearly in that little phrase is that we now have an audience of one. Here's a parable for you. Circle World War II, um, somewhere in Europe. It's a young lady, and it was she was becoming an actress she was, had her first role in a major play. She was to be the lead character. It had a singing part. It was a musical. And she prepared and prepared and practiced and, and just didn't really feel uh, capable of doing the job. But opening night comes nonetheless, right? And so on opening night, she goes, she's behind stage and she's nervous and she's wringing her hands and her hands are sweaty and, and she's walking around and... It comes time for the the curtain to come up on the very first scene, and the first scene of the play, the opening scene of the play, is her and her alone on stage, and she starts talking, and then she's got to sing a part, which basically explains to everybody what her character is for the rest of the show, right? And uh, so she goes out on stage, and they open the curtain, and guess how many people are in the audience? None. Zero. There's nobody there for the play. And so she stammers over her first line as she realizes that there's nobody there. And the director is off backstage and he says, just go, just do it. Just, you know, and he probably had, probably knew there was nobody on before the curtain went up, I don't know. But anyway, he says, just go. So she starts to act, right? And she realizes suddenly what? There's no pressure. This is just like another rehearsal. In fact, it's actually easier than another rehearsal because the people who are training her are not sitting in the audience coaching her and correcting her and causing her all kinds of nervousness. And so she's acting out the play, and, and she gets all of her lines correct. Every line is just right. And then she sings the songs, and you know every note is not perfect, but it's good. It's at least as good as what she practiced or better, and she's feeling pretty good. And so she she's other characters come on the stage, she interacts with them, and they're all carrying it out, and they all deal with that momentary realization that they're doing a play in front of nobody. And then... They get about a third of the way through the play and somebody comes in and sits down to watch. One person, an older gentleman. Uh, somebody passes the word that he's a connoisseur of the arts, that he's, been, he's pretty knowledgeable about plays and stuff like that. He's written articles, he's done things. Uh, and uh, so they want to do a good job for him. But he's just one guy. Just one. And so they're kind of like, well, he could make or break our play depending on what he says outside. But at the same time, he's just one guy. And so they're in this conundrum. But what are they going to do? They're already in the middle of the play. They act, do the best they can. They could put on a pretty good performance, sing the songs, and so on. The stage, the show ends with just him in the audience. And when he writes his article in the paper the next day, he doesn't say the crowd was full. He doesn't say the crowd was empty. He doesn't say that there was nobody there when he arrived. He says, this is a good play. did a good job. And the next night, when the play opens, there's more people in the audience. And then they go and tell. But, but of course, now, because they have been now seen by more people, they're a little more nervous or whatever, but they've had a whole other night's practice, and they, they got that confirmation from the guy who wrote in the newspaper. It's a good play. These guys did a good job. So now they have confirmation. So now other people come and look at them, and then when they do the play they do an even better job, right? It keeps improving. And those people go and tell other people, and even more people come and see the play. And by the time the audience is packed a week later, the play is awesome, and everybody knows it. When you have an audience of one, but it's somebody that you know can make a difference, Somebody that you know can bring you forward, that can take you where you're trying to get to and so on, it makes a huge difference. When you have an audience of a lot and you're not really ready, I mean, let's be really truly honest for a moment here. How many people in this room are comfortable, just flat out comfortable, you enjoy doing it, speaking in front of an audience of 100 people that you don't know? Perfect strangers. I mean, it's okay, right? But does anybody really feel comfortable, you know? I often find myself when I'm sitting when I'm talking just in front of you guys, that I find myself going, like, I wonder if my fly is zipped. You know? Is it? Yeah, it is. Good. That's excellent. The point is, is anybody really comfortable with this? But if you have an audience of one and you know what the expectations are, and you can do what you're supposed to do in front of that person, and that person then is able to present you as a fine jewel, as a refined performer, as somebody who can really do what you're supposed to do, that you can trust. Preachers learn this. When you start a preacher, Arjun, when you start a preacher, and you sit up here, it's a little nerve-wracking, isn't it? It's a huge responsibility. But then you go, but well, wait a minute, actually, I'm just going to say what God wants me to say and I'm going to say it in the way God wants me to say it and then probably, you know, I'm going to tick some people off and some other people are going to be happy with me and whatever. And so not to, I don't know how it's going to all turn out, but this is what I know. It's really about God. and So I can reasonably say that I'm going to stand up and preach even if, if I was just preaching for God. Like, I, pre- I, I kid you not, I'm, I'm giving you a little inside story here, but I preach in my mirror to myself, not to you. I don't like practice preaching in my mirror, but I practice, I I preach to myself sometimes when I'm praying. I preach sometimes when I'm walking around the yard or whatever. You know, just because this is what God has called me to do. And if you have an audience of one like that, can you not see how powerful that is and can be used then? You have no need to pursue an audience you literally will have, for your entire life, an audience of one. At the same time, God then takes Christians and makes them a bit of a spectacle. So after you are ready to perform for your audience of one, after you have shown God that you actually are obedient and faithful, circumcised the heart, fighting sin in yourself, and you really actually are living for God, then God is going to give you somebody. He's going to walk in, like I've had happen a couple times, and he's going to say, "So you tell me how I can be saved. You tell me how, what I need to do to be saved. And if you don't know Acts 16, I suggest you read it. Because when that person comes and asks you what do you need to be do to be saved, you should hear the verses of Acts 16 in your head. Because that's a story in which somebody came in and said, what must I do to be saved? And they answered the question. So you should have that if somebody's going to come and ask you that question. But even now, you've got a simple understanding. You know what you did to be saved. The bottom line is, as you present yourself to God, or rather as God presents you to himself... You don't have to pursue an audience. You, first of all, already have people in your life that you can work with. And secondly, God will put you in front of the people He wants to put you in front of He says He would send the disciples, and by extension the church, in front of kings. And so we have an audience of one, according to Romans 2.29, and that is amazingly liberating. You have no need to act for an audience. I know this is going to be painful for some of you, but the people you're sitting with, your friends, your family members, or whatever, you don't have to act the way they want you to. You have to act the way God wants you to. You don't have to say what they want you to. You don't have to, wait for it now, this will get me in all kinds of trouble later, you don't have to obey your parents. You do have to honor and obey your parents according to Scripture, right? That's what Exodus says. But when your parents would tell you to do something that's not godly, then you can disobey I literally have taught my kids growing up that if I ever ask you to do something that you would say is sin against God, I want you to immediately refuse me. Now, it doesn't mean that I won't punish them. I've even warned them of that. If I think it's right and they think it's wrong, it's not what God would want, that I've given them permission to not do what I've told them to do, doesn't mean I won't punish them. Well, what does Scripture say about it? You get punished for doing what's right, and then God takes care of you and He rewards you. When you get punished for doing what's wrong, which kids do all the time, and so do adults, right? When you get punished for doing what's wrong, God is not going to reward you for that. You got what you deserved. That's just justice. So there's no need for us to act for an audience except for if we were going to be for God. And if you learn who God is and let God work in you, then it is not not about acting for God, But in some sense, it's about God acting in you, right? And through you. This brings death to regret. And properly handled, it brings death to fear and worry. Now that's huge for today. Do you understand that if you are answering to God and God tells you to do, insert whatever, even though the rest of the world may hate it, even though the rest of the world might be against it. And if you're sure, and you should always check versus Scripture, don't get, out of, don't get away from last week's sermon, right? You should always be listening to the Holy Spirit and checking versus Scripture. But if you now have something you're supposed to do, like wear odd clothing, or say something that you normally wouldn't say, or intervene in somebody else's life and say, hey, I'm here to show up and I'm here to make a difference in what situation, tell me what situation is, let me fix it, let me do what I can. If, you, if you're supposed to do that... Right then when you're doing that for God, it doesn't really matter what other people think. So you don't have to fear. right? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what Scripture says. So you don't have to fear doing what seems a little odd. You, you may have to give up certain freedoms or things that you think are freedoms in order to be free. In other words, you can sitting home fretting and worrying about what tomorrow is going to bring is like a human pastime. We're all concerned about what our grades are going to be, is the paycheck going to be big enough, are the bills going to get paid. Sitting and fretting and worrying about what the future is going to bring is like a natural, fleshly human pastime. And yet, if you have an audience of one, what if the bill doesn't get paid? What if the money isn't enough? What if the thing you're supposed to do tomorrow you didn't properly prepare yourself for, etc.? If you have an audience of one, you really only have to answer to God. And if God wants to take you down a different road because you didn't do what you were supposed to do, then that's up to God. Now, if you know what you're supposed to do, of course, then do it, right? In fact, it says in the book of James, if you know what's uh, what's good to do and don't do it, that is sin, which is contrary to God. And by the way, what is the Holy Spirit trying to kill in us again? Bottom line is, you need to figure out who is your audience. Who are you playing to? Who do you care what they think? And you need to stop letting that be other human beings for the most part. And I'll give you an exception to that later. But for the most part, you need to stop letting that be other human beings and make it totally and completely about God. I'm going to stop right there with that thought and we'll come back to it. But you know, I hope, and if you don't, I'm, I'm, I'm about to basically tell you about it, <laughs> that Jesus had a bunch of folks who were following him. And some of them began to believe in him. And in fact, there were a number of Jews. And there are today, by the way, one of the largest growing areas of uh, Christianity is Jews who are coming to realize that Jesus really was the Messiah. It's one of the, worldwide, it's one of the largest growing areas of Christianity. Because he was really the Messiah. That's why they've you know they been taught for so long. They're not supposed to look at the New Testament but with information flow becoming more available and it's kind of hard to even Google the internet without bumping into the Bible unless you're Googling something you probably shouldn't have anything to do with. And that kind of thing. And so the, lots and lots of Jewish people are now coming to the realization. But there was then that day people who had come to the realization coming out of Judaism and they thought, well we think this guy is a Messiah. He, he, he's got miracles and incredible things. And his teachings are phenomenal. And he comes from a kind of a mediocre background. So how did he get all this? And, and they started thinking He was, and so they believed in Jesus, and Jesus looked at those who believed in Him, and he says, "Now that you have believed in me, come, follow me, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." Now, I understand that you and I might want to dumb that down, John 14, 6, and say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and Say, come follow me, and then you will know me, and then I, being the truth, will set you free. You could do that if you really want to do that. It's not even a bad extrapolation, but it is by no means the whole of what he's talking about, right? He's talking about something considerably more than that. Because they had already believed in him in what he had said. They didn't really know him necessarily, personally but they knew him enough to know that what he was saying was true. So they had already believed him. It says those Jews who had believed in him, to them he said that. So when you come follow Jesus, there is a process in which God interjects more and more, and you eventually will be free. Come, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I submit to you that this is a large part of that truth. You live, I live, we live, corporately and individually, family, familially, Oh boy, that's a big word, or on your own, you live for an audience of one. And that one is not you. Because of what we learned last week, Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in us. Our flesh, which had previously, through our fleshly desires, used the word to kill us, we've now been resurrected. And the us that's in us, that has been resurrected, now lives for an audience of one that is not us. Because if it was me, then I would be constantly getting pushed by my desires and having to do what I want to do, right? My flesh wants to do what my my carnal mind wants to do. But no, that's not who I live for. I live now for God. And and of course, Paul wrote it this way. He said, we now live not for ourselves, but for he who died for us. Talking about Jesus, who was God in the flesh. You can be free. You have been freed if you've become a follower of God. If God says, I'm free, I'm free indeed. Whom the Son frees, he is free indeed. If you have an audience of one, you have been freed. Stop worrying about what other people think of your little idiosyncrasies, etc. Now, there is a place to pay attention to other people's opinions, and we'll get there. Bottom line is, first thing out of these, just a short phrase that I want you to see there, is that we are now freed by having an audience of one. The second thing, there must be a humble realization that even you don't really know you. Let's get realistic, okay? So a number of times I've been posed with uh, some hypothetical question like, if you and your wife were walking down the street and a guy jumped out with a gun, what would you do? Now I have some class answers that I might use, things I might want to do, things like that. But really what they're asking you is, would you interpose your life in front of somebody else's life? Would you take the bullet? Would you jump out? Would you dive on the grenade? Would you take the knife slash? in order to protect the people that you love. And I hope that every man in the room is going, boy, yes, I would. Because that's the kind of people we're supposed to be, not only for our wives, which is nice, or our daughters, or whatever, but really for people in general. If you're walking down, RJ, if you and I are walking down the street and a guy jumps out with a knife, I'm hoping you're jumping in the way, okay?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping I'm jumping in the way.
1: <laughs> well,
0: whatever. Whatever. Right? I'm hoping somebody's I hope RJ and I will be like the little chipmunks. You jump on the knife. No, I'll jump on the knife. Yes, I'll do it. No, I'll do it. You know, the bottom line is there has to be a humble realization that in that moment you don't really know what you're going to do. Now, there are people in this room who have been put to the test in the most drastic of circumstances that you or I, most of us have not seen. There are military people in the room who have been in a fight to the death. There have been people in a room who have rescued a child from a moving car or who have held the hand of a dying loved one while their heart was literally breaking for hours or even days. There have been people that were sat in the room with one of their loved ones and tried to explain to them, look, what you're doing is damaging to you. You have to put the drugs away or you have to give up this illicit sexual relationship or you have to whatever. And they plead and beg and And no way of getting them to accept the truth and how damaging it, how bad it is for them. And their heart is breaking the whole time and some of us have never been there. You have to come to a humble realization to understand that you don't even know what you would do in those hypothetical situations. And I understand they're radical situations. You might say, uh, like everybody in this room has probably been the caregiver or the person in charge making sure that a small child doesn't walk out into traffic at some point in time. You probably have a brother, a sibling, a friend. You did it for church ministry, something. Almost everybody has been there. But if they ran out into traffic and you're 10 feet away and they're clearly about to get hit, do you know, I mean, with absolute certainty, that you're running out there to try to dive and take them to the other side of the road or grab them and throw them out of the way so you could be hit or whatever? It's hard to know what we would do in those situations. I, agree, I get it. They're radical situations. They're nth situations. They're, they're, the, they're the bottom of the barrel. You hope you'll never be there. I've been in a couple of situations, and I still cannot explain to you how I found the, the character or fortitude or whatever, because I'm, I'm here to stand before you today. I don't have it. As a human being, I do not have it. Before I got saved, I was intimidated by Everybody. I didn't talk with strangers unless I had to and, and if I did it was always in a business relationship and if I was not in the business relationship, if I wasn't the person in charge like a manager or something that in the business relationship then I would avoid those conversations. I never ever ever complained when my food was wrong. I wouldn't go to a restaurant they're all listening to my ringtone online right now because apparently I forgot to turn it off that's alright, just ignore it. Anyway, i don't push the button. Anyway, so I wouldn't even go and order a sandwich plain because I was afraid of the minimum wage worker working behind the counter thinking badly about me because I don't like condiments. And now I have been in situations where I've been extremely, I've faced violent people, people with weapons, people who were getting loud up in my face, people who could have broke my neck at, a, at an instant, people who could have cost me my job like that, and found somewhere and I'm going to submit to you it's from God, but found somewhere the courage to do the right thing under those circumstances and then afterwards for God to go, yeah, that was the right thing. And I'm going, I'm glad you knew because I totally didn't. And some of you have been in much more difficult situations than I have and I'm by no means trying to set myself out as an example. What I'm saying is that we all have to humbly realize that even we don't know exactly what we would do in a lot of circumstances that we've never been in. But this having an audience of one and recognizing humbly that you might not know yourself all that much comes with a freedom so that when the chips are down, when I have nothing left, when I don't know what I would do, God is with me, will not abandon me, and will act through me. If you don't know God, then you don't know that He's that kind of a God. You don't know that he has that character, that he loves you, that he'll go beyond, that he'll be there. Right? And if you don't know that, then I suggest you retreat back to point A and realize that you were born with a fleshly desire to sin. You sinned. You need a Savior. Jesus died for you. Believe in Him. Accept Him as Lord of your life and that God raised Him on the dead. Confess that out loud with your mouth and begin today to live as a saved Christian with a circumcised heart, the Holy Spirit in you, killing sin daily, and you and I together, hopefully, but if not, then severally learning more of what it means to belong to him each day. And one of the things that it means is not knowing exactly what I would do in the worst of circumstances. This much I do know what God will do. And that is God will always show up. He will always be with me. He will not abandon me. And he will empower me. God will do. Will I? And I hope so. But this much I know for sure. God will. God will. Some see James chapter 4, which we're going to go there and look at briefly. I thought we were going to get away from not turning too many pages today, but not so lucky. Okay. Some see James chapter 4 as a sort of a, oh, what's the word? Like a, a restriction or a burden, right? They think of it as a ball and chain. And you're going like, what is he talking about in James chapter 4? Well, let's go look at it. James 4, beginning in verse 12. It says this, James 4, beginning in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. Notice the emphasis on one. There is one who is able to save and destroy. That ain't you. It ain't me. It ain't a collected body of us or a president or a governor, or an officer, or a lawyer. There is, let me say it again, one lawgiver and judge and one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Hear that? And in the context of that statement, he goes on to say, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is... You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So the first statement, if you will, was there is only one lawgiver and judge. There's one God. He is the one. He is our audience of one. And then he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, and he goes into this idea of planning, controlling, you being in charge. You realize that the last time you really got down on somebody because they lied, you were basically saying that you'll never lie again, ever in your life, for any circumstances. I'll not lie. I am not a liar. I'll never lie. And so now I'm really, I can be really down on people who lie. The last time you really got down somebody stole from you, you basically said, wait for it, that you'll never talk on your cell phone around a corner while you're on the clock, again. Or, you'll never clock out five minutes early and get paid for the whole hour. Or, you'll never not return the change when you get a little bit extra change. Or, you'll never not find a dollar, a dollar on the ground and look around for who it belongs to, etc. So we judge people and we say, what they're doing is wrong, Well we really ought to be majoring in figuring out how to do right. That's really what our job is. It goes it's so much I'm just gonna go aside for one second, it's so much true that if you see somebody do something wrong and you can't fix it, you saw somebody lie or whatever, then you ought to do everything in your power to make reparations for what they did. Not make them do what's right. That's not your job. You don't control them, you control you. Now I'm aware that here we have a victim. Here we have somebody who stole from, lied to, hurt in some way, doesn't have what they want. So now, how can I spend my time, my money, whatever, to help that person to overcome what that person did to them? That person has nothing to do with you. The person who did wrong, they have nothing to do with you. And we'll come back and talk about what that could look like, but the bottom line is you don't have to worry about fixing them. They live for an audience of one, just like you or I do. But this person over here has been hurt. Why aren't you doing something about it? Why aren't you stepping in and trying to make it better? Unless, of course, you've lost your humble realization. You say, well, you know, I would never do that. I could never even accidentally victimize anyone. If that's true, you're arrogant, probably not walking in the Lord. Because you know that intentionally or by accident, you will eventually hurt someone. And I'll say this to you. I think a humble realization that he, I don't even know what I would do at, adds this to my character. If I screw up and I hurt somebody, and I don't know about it, or if I do it on purpose, I want somebody, if it's not going to be me, I want somebody to come behind me and fix it. Do what they can to make it better. I make mistakes. I don't even make the right decisions sometimes. And you don't either. And we have to realize that as we're living for God, a humble realization that even we don't know what we'll do frees us from judging anyone else, frees us from needing to make plans about what the future is going to be like. And I'm going to control this. You realize that for all of us, and and I think, and I'm not speaking against against financial management, I think we all should be, for example, planning for our retirement or... Uh, maybe saving for your vacation. If you think you're going to take a vacation next year, then you should be putting money aside for that. You know? If you think you're going to buy a new car in three to five years, you should have that in your spending plan, planning to put aside that money. You know your car is going to break down sometimes, so there should be money set aside for that. And I'm not, I, I'm, not, I'm not against that in any way, shape, or form. But this is the truth. The money that you're putting aside to fix your car next year, you could be dead before then. So if you've got it in your head, next year I'll have two grand, if I need a car, I'll just go buy one in cash. You realize you may die before you ever spend that two grand. And that's a realism. That's just understanding the way the world works. Now, because we're working for God, odds are if the world's still here until the rapture, until Jesus takes us away, we're still going to be here because we can still spread the gospel. So probably you're not dying anytime soon if you're faithfully walking with the Lord as your audience of one. But have a humble realization that not only might you screw up and hurt somebody, and somebody else might have to fix it, therefore I can do the same thing. Instead of me judging, they screwed that person over, and so now I'm mad at the person who did the bad thing, I should be fixing the problem and doing the best I can. Because it might be me. I might be the next person to screw somebody over and hurt somebody, and I might need somebody else to fix my mess. But if you'd never do it, then you don't have to worry about it. But if you think you'd never do it, you're probably already doing it on a fairly regular basis. Some see this equation here as a kind of a ball and chain. Like, well, I can't plan to do anything. I have to say, get God's permission first. Yes, you have to get God's permission first. Totally made the world, created you, created Adam's. You know, set everything up. He's in charge of it all. He owns it all. Yes, you have to get God's permission first before you do what you're about to do. Just like if you're living in your parents' house and you're going to stay out too late or you're going to go make a huge purchase or you're going to break something in the kitchen or you're going to make dad's steak instead of leaving it for him to eat. You have to get permission first, right? So get permission from God. Walk with God. Follow God's leadership. The Holy Spirit in you, circumcised heart. He's about killing the sin. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing anyway. And then if you make a mistake, God will be there with you. The third thing to see in this text then is that following God or, or having God as an audience of one humble realization that even you don't know what you would do under certain circumstances is that we're also freed by not having a set of rules. Coming from a gamer from way back, I've been playing board games, card games, role-playing games, every kind of game there ever was invented. I've never really been good at video games, but I've played quite a few over the years and things like that. One of the things I first learned, if you sit down and play a game, somebody's got to know the rules to the game. Otherwise, you're just going to fiddle around for a couple hours and never get around to playing while everybody learns how to play, but nobody actually plays. But as long as somebody knows the rules, then what's the first thing, the next thing that has to happen? Whoever knows the rules has to help those who don't know the rules basically understand how to play. Okay? And here is what's really frustrating. This has driven me nuts every single time it has ever happened to me to the point that I, I've always been ready to just go, I'm never going to play this game again. Just totally blew up. Is when you sit down with somebody that you've never played before, and they're explaining you how to play, and then halfway through the game, they say, oh, you know, there is this little known rule here, or this extra phase to the turn, or this thing that your whatever can do, or whatever. And and it causes me to be able to do this now, so now they have this massive advantage in the game. They never told you about the rule, but they use the rule halfway through the game to make it so that they have an advantage. Now they're going to win the game, and that's an, it's a foreseen outcome because you didn't know you could do that. And you go, Look, I could have done that five turns ago, and I could have done that ten turns ago, and I could have done that at the beginning of the game, but I didn't know about that. But now I know about it because you wanted to do it, and you taught me. This is the funny thing about a set of rules it's all in perception. Right? Does the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not lie? Shall we take a poll? Let's do that real quick. How many of you think the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not lie? Raise your hand. I got one hand. Anybody else? Come on. It's okay. I'm not gonna scold you when you're wrong or anything. All right. It says thou shalt not bear false witness, right? And written in a legal document, so what does it mean to not bear false witness? Not to lie. In what context? No, it doesn't mean don't talk about others. That would be broadening the context too much. Elsewhere in scripture it says that, but it doesn't say that in the Ten Commandments. What's that? Don't give false testimony against someone else. If a brother is in sin, this is going back to the old days, if a brother were in sin and they did something wrong, and three people came against him and accused him in a public way, essentially a court has begun. Right? And if... What he did wrong. So if he was caught in adultery and three men came and accused him of caught in adultery, is he hauled off to a judge? Is that what they did? Now what did they do? They took him out the, outside the town or outside the camp in their case, right? And stoned him, right? So they threw stones on him. The last, or first thing they did was put a big boulder on his chest so he couldn't get up. <laughs> the first stone was this huge stone. Put it on his chest again. And then they throw stones at him until he's dead. No court, right? So the point is, if you would bear false testimony against this guy, he could be stoned to death. Right? So you're lying about him in a legal situation that can have ramifications. That's what the 10 commandments are about. But when you interpret the 10 commandments to say, now, let me be very clear, lying is a sin, you shouldn't do it, right? That's in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Right? It's also in the Old Testament, but it's clearly laid out in the New Testament, lying is a sin, you have to give that up as a Christian. But that being said, When you go to anybody you know and you tell them that the Ten Commandments says thou shalt not lie and there is one translation that has it, maybe more than one, that has it that way you aren't wrong per se but you're not exactly right either are you? See what I'm saying? That's the problem with a set of rules. That's the problem with beating people up with your Bible. It says right here you can't do that. Smack! Right? Right? You can't just do that because a set of rules. Is, are we living by a set of rules? No. A set of rules will at best build you a cage to keep you away from a burning fire or falling off a cliff or running into a guy with a knife. Those kinds. Of, it will at best give you some protections. It will not. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jesus' day, this is what they had done. They looked at the rules of the Old Testament, the laws that God had given them. We can't break those. Gosh, we can't break those. We could die if we break those. This is a horrible thing to break those. So let's be super careful we don't break those. Let's make a bunch more rules that make it so that we never get close. So, for example, keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't work on the Sabbath was their command. So then they made a rule to say, well, we need to know exactly what constitutes work on the Sabbath. So they made a rule that says, if at the end of the day after walking only a certain number of steps that you're allowed to walk, after that, at the end of the day, if you find a pin in the hem of your garment, you have worked on the Sabbath, you have profaned the Sabbath, and you must undergo a ritual cleansing. Now you show me where that's at in Scripture. That's the problem with a set of rules. At best, it will bind you. At best, it will manipulate you. At best, it will propel you in a certain direction, like a bank of a river. But we are not subject to a set of rules. Truth is, some people think being subject to a set of rules would actually be easier if we had, say, a three-point plan. That's how you get to heaven. You just got to do this. Then we follow those three points very literally and we would get there, right? But actually, what we're called to is a... You need to get this because it's a lot of Ps here. A permanent personal pursuit of His presence. That's what we're called to. A permanent personal pursuit of His presence. We want God at work in us, which amazingly is what God wants. Also, as we are called to a permanent personal pursuit of His presence, we are called to prefer His promised perfect end and His present peace over a wasteful worldly wickedness that amounts to little more than wishful wantings. How many people do you think want to go to heaven? For those that believe what heaven is, everybody, Mike's right, everybody. For those who want to have an idea, that some people will deny that there is a heaven because they don't want to admit that they're not going there, right? But let's, let's be realistic. If somebody says, I know what heaven is, I know what it's like, do I want to get there? Yes. Even if you go in false religions across the world, they all have different ways to get into the eternal life that God talks about. They talk about them in different words or whatever, like if you die in a holy war, you get 13 virgins in heaven for eternity, right? Things like that. They all have different ways to arrive somewhere that's an image of what they understand heaven to be. We all want to go to heaven. But God says actually what he wants for us is a permanent presence with us. A lasting, permanent relationship with God. That's what he wants. And that's what you'll have in heaven. And because you have it, you'll get to heaven. And then he'll be there in a more physical way, perhaps, even though he's spiritual and we will be spiritual too. And, and yes, they are hard things to understand. And so, because we don't know all the rules, and you couldn't know all the rules, and if you did know all the rules, you could be pretty sure you'd break them anyway. What God has called us to is a permanent personal pursuit of his presence. And being satisfied, preferring his promised perfect end, where we're going to go, the way he, what he's going to eventually do in us, preferring that, And his present peace, in other words, he's already at work in us. Jesus says, My peace I give you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives you peace. And all that over a wasteful worldly wickedness that amounts to little more than wishful wantings. That's freedom. That's being freed from a set of rules. Now, are the things that are in the law good? We talked about that last week. Yes, they are. Is the, good, is the law meant for life and light and to bring people to a good place? Yes. Ideally, the, the law was supposed to make people go, oh gosh, <laughs> I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. God, please give me a Savior. They wouldn't know his name was Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ of Nazareth, but they would know that God was going to prepare a way that, how do you think Abraham got saved? He trusted in the way that God was eventually going to make By recognizing in some, it was before the law was written, but recognizing in some little way that he could not live in this permanent personal presence with God except that God did something for him and gave him grace. Well, that brings us to our conclusion already. But it's kind of a lengthy conclusion because I'm going to try to give you some application of what it is that we need to do. Okay, And the conclusion is called Naked and Unashamed. Now, we're all going to take our clothes off. No, we're not, because I would not be unashamed, and nor would you, right? We're not going to take our clothes off, and I don't mean literal physical clothing anyway, right? Who am I referring to? Does anybody know what, when I say naked and unashamed, what am I referring to? What does that bring to mind? Naked and unashamed.
5: Your
0: soul. Yeah, today would be bearing your soul in a way. Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, naked and unashamed, how many people were in the garden with Adam when he was naked and unashamed? One. One. Who was it? Eve. Eve. How many people were with Eve in the garden when she was naked and unashamed? One. Okay, I'm going to tell you a little something. I'm going to be a little transparent for a moment right now, okay? I don't mean to embarrass any young people in the room. When I first married my wife, before we were married, we had Alicia because we were not saved. We... We had an adulterous fornication, whatever you want to call it, affair, and created a beautiful baby, and, and God later saved our souls. I did not want to be naked in front of my lover. I did not want to be naked in front of my wife. Now, I, I'm not so sure I would quite say I was ashamed, but I felt extremely uncomfortable I've gone to a number of like cookouts and things, and it's really common in East Lido. And guys are running around with their shirts off, they wear pants or shorts, or whatever, no shirts on, and they got maybe tattoos or maybe they don't. They got chest hair, or maybe they don't. They got boobies that they probably shouldn't have, but, or maybe they don't. They've got bellies hanging out, most of them, right? Because they're mostly drinking the beer and they're hanging. And I've been there, RJ, <laughs> right? And we and they all hang around. I, I'm, I'm here to tell you. And I'm not bothered by it. It does not bother me one bit, but I don't need to see it. And they're unashamed. And these are guys that have got 50 extra pounds on their gut, walking around, unashamed, slightly tanned, whatever. Now, when they start taking their pants off, I much more than don't need to see it. You see what I'm saying? I'm gone. I'm out of there. if they take their pants off in front of my wife, I may not be out. She'll be out of there, but I may not be leaving. Except when a squad car comes to get me. It's going to be ugly. What I'm saying to you is, Adam and Eve... So, how many days... Let's be really realistic. How many days did Adam know Eve before he walked naked in front of her? Zero. Zero. He met her the day she was created. Right? Right? no days so he literally did not know her at all never had met her and there he is just buck naked walking around with this junk hanging out in front of this beautiful woman and not ashamed not bothered by it at all also not lusting nothing unhealthy going on here how many days did Eve know Adam before that happened? none 30 seconds. yeah 30 seconds she woke up she went oh I exist oh there's a naked man I mean, that would freak almost anybody out, right? But there's Eve, and she's like, no, I'm not freaked out at all. This doesn't bother me. This is what we do, right? And so now here we are, not at all naked and unashamed, and not free. It's about, and I'm not saying we should be free to be naked. I don't want to be naked with people. That's not my thing, all right? And, and I understand we, we have to deal with some of that because of the lust and the issues that go along with it. You need to dress appropriately, and everybody needs to dress appropriately, and probably men should not be hanging around, drinking beer, no shirts off, around other people's women. Maybe. I don't know. That's between them and God, I suppose. The bottom line is, we are freed by, we have an audience of one. So, let's be, I'm just going to be, again, very candid. Does God say, when it's you and God alone, do you need clothes? No. You get in the shower, God's there. He sees you naked all the time. Are you ashamed of that? Right? So when it's you and God alone, you don't need clothes. you bring in other people, interpersonal relationships, and now you need clothes. And it all goes back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and ever since then and lust and fleshly nature and the other person that's there is trying through the power, if they're a Christian, trying through the power of the Holy Spirit to kill sins. They shouldn't lust. You don't want to see. So by the way, if you're a man or a woman and you're not married, don't ever see anyone naked ever until you're married. Just avoid that. And if you're except maybe like in a gym if it's other guys and you know or something like that. But otherwise just avoid it. And if you're A young person, you're dating somebody and you're engaged, you don't see them naked until your wedding night, right? Because you're exposing yourselves to lust. But we're really talking about, as Ron said, nakedness of the soul. If you can trust, as we talked about under a humble realization that even you don't really know, that God will always act, then you really don't have anything to worry about. You can be you. You can be essentially naked and unashamed. Now, I'm not saying take your clothes off. I'm saying you can basically be you. You can act the way you think God wants you to act. You can stop holding yourself back because you're so concerned about what the world will think. You can be okay being you. You can get your spiritual beer and take your shirt off at your own cookout because it's your cookout, but really it's God's cookout. You're going to be okay. You can be you. But there's a couple of practical things. Based on all this then, so uh I had a few questions that I had to ask and maybe you would ask these same questions too. So what happens with all of this like uh if I'm living for God and I just really let it all hang out, not in a nasty way, but I really live for God and I don't hold anything back, what happens when I have nothing left? If I take all my money and I spend it for the poor as Jesus told the rich man to do or if I uh because money's a problem for you, maybe you need to do that, but If I do all these things, I take huge risks. If I wind up on a cross and I'm about to be uh, um, being crucified, or if I wind up on a stake and I'm being burnt, or if I wind up um, persecuted in a back alley near to death, what do I do? What happens when there is nothing left? To which I would say, taking, no pun intended, the devil's advocate position, maybe it'd be easier without the blessings of God. Well, we're talking about being freed by these things. Maybe it would be easier if we didn't have the blessings. You realize that most of the things that you're afraid of losing, they are the blessings that God has given you. Remember Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man got his stuff during life. Lazarus didn't. Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich man goes to hell. Jesus used it. that was talking about the rich man got his blessings. That's what he said. It's not really the topic of this, but it's notable that the rich man went to hell and, the, and Lazarus went to heaven. You remember the parable that Jesus told about the man who would build many barns? If you don't, it's okay, but I'm going to tell you the gist of it. Basically, there's a guy and he gets kind of nearing to the end of his life and he says, uh, "Well, I've done really well and now I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build new ones and store lots more stuff and then I'm going to live out my days in ease. And God says to him, no, actually you're going to die today, so then who's going to have all your barns? all your stuff and Jesus God of that says store up for yourselves treasures in heaven not on earth where moth and rust and thief and so on maybe you're familiar with the parable of the four soils it's about a farmer who goes out sowing taking his bag of seed he's going to go sow the crops and some falls along the trail and some falls in the thorny soil and so on different soils you've probably heard this parable if you haven't you can read it in Mark chapter 4 or Matthew chapter 13 or Luke chapter 8 And those lists are now on the podcast. And maybe somebody on Facebook will type them in. Mark 4, Matthew 13, Luke 8. But the bottom line is, there's one set of soil where the, the, the seed starts to take good root and produce, but the cares and the what of this world then choke it out. The riches. The cares and the riches of this world. The problem with us being freed by having an audience of one, by realizing that we might not even know ourselves all that well, what we would do in certain circumstances, and by not living by a set of rules, is that we have all these things that we want to keep for ourselves. I can't tell you the number of times I've seen a child or a grandchild say, I can't wait until my friends come over and play with me with my toys. And how does that always go? I want that toy he's playing with. I wanted them to come and play with me, but now that they've come, I want what they're playing with, right? The hardest thing to living these, this way that I'm talking about is the stuff that we get attached to and the ideas and stuff that we get attached to. Ren Financial Management, there's many of them, but Ren Financial Management says it this way. The purpose of wealth is basically broken down into three things. One, protect capital. That is, stay rich. Two, Grow capital, that is, get richer. Three, enjoy capital. That's it. And so everybody in the world who's got a little something is going to their financial advisors and learning how to keep what they've got, get more, and enjoy what they've got. That is not what life was for. (laughs) And so if you get wrapped up or tied up in the trappings of this life, Another financial manager, Care Financial, adds this. They say, also it's true, equally important is what your wealth can help you do in a larger sense for your community, etc. That's almost getting close, isn't it? What if the only thing that's actually important about your wealth is what you can actually do with it to bless other people, to show love, to spread God's word, etc.? According to the Bible, pretty sure that's basically it. So it isn't about getting richer. It isn't about keeping your riches or about enjoying your capital. It isn't about any of those things. Rather, Jesus said, store up treasures for yourself in heaven. So what happens when you run out? God wants you to have more. He'll give you more. How many people there are in the history of the United States of America, big names, guys that you'd recognize, who filed bankruptcy three or four or sometimes seven times before they finally made their big name that you're familiar with? Newspapermen. Satirists, Mark Twain did it. Mark Twain filed bankruptcy and then went back and intentionally paid off all of his debts because he thought it was the right thing to do. You don't need half of what you have. You have it as a blessing from God, and you can use it as a blessing for God. And if you run out of it, then that was just meant to be. Second thing is, where does the church fit in in all this? Because we've been talking awful lot about living in a, as an audience of one. So God is our only audience. Um, and so we're gonna, I'm going to show you two things, by, two short videos that Josh has queued up for me. Uh, the first one is a flock of geese. It's very short. Tommy, we get that light. It's on the other side. Okay, this is a flock of geese. I hope you can see it. See them there? Flying across the screen. Oh, it's a little closer. They're flying in a V formation. Geese do that. While we're watching this for a few more seconds, I want you to think about how far away the front geese in the V is from the furthest back geese. So there's some distance there, right? There's a still shot to end on. I think it actually paused. 20, 33 seconds left.
4: 22 seconds left. Okay, there we go.
0: There's the geese flying. It's still going. 27 seconds. Press the play button again. There we go. Gotta love the internet sometimes. Okay, so there's a little more there, but you've seen enough to know what I'm talking about. Where does the church fit in? So when a a V of geese flies, I'm going to ask you a couple questions to make you think, and I think you'll get the picture. Is the front geese in the V together with the back? Front goose together with the back goose. Are they together? Yes, they are together. In fact, they are so much together that when that front goose gets tired, he'll go to the back and fly, and they'll rotate, and somebody else will fly in the front so that eventually that V will fly hundreds of miles and everyone will get a turn in the front. That's a picture of what the church is. We're all going the same way. We all had a circumcised heart. The Holy Spirit is at work in destroying sin in us and we're partnering with Him to do so. And we're going the way God wants us to go. Now I understand some will leave the V. Some will fall off. Some will not actually do what they said they would do and so on. Where does the church fit in? The church is all one master, all one purpose, all together going, watching over one another, sacrificing for one another. Your concern for each other person's concerns, your concerns for other people, keep you on track in the pack. This is important. How much you care about the rest of the church and doing things for the rest of the church that's what will keep you going the right way. It is not how much you care about yourself because you can go out then and be a Lone Ranger Christian. You can go out then and meet your own needs. You can go out then and find a way to get a second or a third job or steal or whatever to get the money that you need to make sure you have enough, right? If instead you care about the other people in your church, that will actually guide you. I'm going to show you a second short video if it works. Josh? Okay. These are called starlings. They're flying in what's called a murmuration. See them? Those are birds, small birds. That's called a murmuration. It's probably about 2,000, 3,000 birds in there. A murmuration will get together and starlings and other small birds, mostly starlings, but other small birds do it too. They'll get together and they'll swoop around like that in a mob. Tommy, you can turn the light back on now. And never once does one bird collide with another bird. They'll have radar or sonar a lot of times they don't even make a noise. I mean, sometimes they'll chirp and things like that. But even if they don't make noise, they will never collide with another bird. No bird falls out. They football around like that. And eventually they pick a direction and they go. And they'll fly off, essentially, in a V formation or whatever. And off they go. Right? Occasionally, parts will break off and settle and, and then later come back to the pack and things. Now, a couple of things about starlings that are important. Number one, starlings were not native to North America. They were introduced to Central Park in New York by some Shakespeare lovers who wanted all the birds that were in Shakespeare to be present in North America. I know that sounds really weird. But then since then, they've become almost like a plague across the entire country. There are millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of these birds across the entire, entire country. In fact, some people lobby to get rid of them. There's so many of them. They don't really hurt anything. They're just like other small birds. Unless, of course, I suppose, if you flew a plane into their murmuration, that'd, that'd probably be the end of your plane, I suppose. But, but the point is... These birds manage to function together. Scientists watch them. Here's what they found out: each bird, each starling, watches seven other starlings that are near them. They keep track of those seven starlings that are near them, and then the, the next one of those is keeping track of seven others, which might include the original or it might not, and so on. And so it creates this vast web of starlings caring about the other starlings in the murmuration. And whatever way one goes, they all go. And they flit around. And they literally, you saw them take hairpin turns at at 30 mile an hour in the air and don't bump into each other. Because they care about the others in the flock. This is what the church is supposed to look like. As you are concerned for each other, that keeps you on track in the path. Here's what happens sometimes. People go, well, so-and-so is not doing for me. So-and-so didn't show up and visit me enough. So-and-so didn't send me enough cards or gifts or so-and-so said something I didn't like. As soon as you do that, you divorce yourself from what God meant the church to be. And when you do that, we get crashes and we lose people. We lose love. We lose faith. Rather, what we should do is taking turns and let people lead as their spiritual gifts become appropriate. Care about other members of the group. And as you care, that will keep you on track. The entire New Testament was written to the church collected. Was sealed by the church collected. So when people say, I don't know about the church where I can just go off and be a follower of God. I live for an audience of one, right? If you're living for an audience of one, you cannot do that without the church because the church is the place and the people in which someone lives for an audience of one. And you will keep on track by caring more about the people around you, not just your family members, but by caring more about the people around you than about yourself. Why not a Lone Ranger Christian? Well, of course, there's the command to evangelism, to make other Christians or tell them about Jesus so they can become other Christians. And then there's a command to love your brother. First John 4.20 says, By this everyone will know you are, you are my disciples if you love one another. That's not First John 4.20. That's Jesus speaking. 1 John 4.20 is where it says, Who, If you cannot love your brother or sister that you have seen, then you cannot love God whom you have not seen. Don't you understand that these people here, and yes, we're all flawed and have issues and whatever, but these people here were created in the image of God. They represent God. If you don't love Tommy, you don't love God. That's all there is to it. I didn't say it. John wrote it. If you don't love Arden, you don't love God. If you don't love Rayleigh, you don't love God. If you don't love Rosie, you don't love God. And by love, I don't mean, oh, I love them. Yes, I do love them. They're kind of cute and I would like to pet them. No, that's not love. Love is when you go, they have a practical need of some kind. I'm going to meet it. I am going to get an extra part-time job to pay to get their car fixed. Or I'm going to take from my savings. Or I'm going to give them my key. Or I'm going to step up and encourage them. Or I'm going to call them when they're hurting. Or That's love. It's practical, intentional action on their behalf. And I have a problem with that because I don't see it present in the church the way it should be. Which makes me wonder whether the church even is the church. Except that I know our church is the church. So then I'm asking you to repent of that and to begin to love each other in that way and to work for each other. You say, well, I don't even know if they're a Christian. Not your job! So I see them messing up and I don't like it. Not your job! Your job is to love them. And as you love them, that will keep you on track. You cannot be a lone ranger Christian because if you are a lone ranger Christian, you do not love God. John wrote it. Seeing how people have messed up, here is the actual place for Matthew 7. Don't judge salvation by what your eyes see. You don't save people and your standards don't save people and the rules you think are right don't save people. God saves people. And if they say they're saved and they're living for the Lord, then you don't judge them and say they're not. We do practice accountability. We're required, essentially, by this very thing. You say you're living by an audience of one. You understand what that means, right? If I'm living for an audience of one, I no longer, and this is going to hurt a little bit here when I say this, I no longer have to care, at least not for the direction of my life, what my wife thinks. Man, that's hard. I no longer have to care, at least for the direction of my life, what my God th- or what my boss thinks. I only have to care what my God thinks. So it can require leaving behind those you love. Jesus said it this way: If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And a little follow-up, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Understand? Now, Jesus did not mean that you should hate people, but he's saying, if in the moment, like if it comes right down to it, and I have authorized Sherry, if Jesus comes again, and, she, and in that moment she has some kind of doubt that I'm not going, she's supposed to go anywhere. Go anyway. Go without me. Leave me. Go. And if we're in a situation where following God has us do something and she knows it, it's happened a couple of times, she knows this is what God wants us to do and she'll come to me afterwards and she'll say, okay, well I did this. I felt like it was what God wanted us to do. And whether I agree or not, it doesn't matter. She's got to live for an audience of one. Now, as a married couple, collectively, we live for an audience of one. So we're supposed to be working together. She lives for an audience of one. I live for an audience of one. Together, we live for an audience of one, God. And that's when we become one. And it's the only time you ever actually really are married It's when God does that. You will have to leave behind those you love to live this way, freed. At the same time, it's not really about that, is it? What is it really about? It's actually really about bringing along those you love. So if your wife or your children or whatever are not understanding, your job is to bring them to an understanding. If they're not going the direction, you have to bring them to the direction. If somebody's struggling in sin, you are to bring them in the right direction. Remember we saw the geese flying? And there's a leader, and they take turns being a leader, and I think that's the way the church is supposed to work in that regard. But guess what? You know what happens when a goose becomes wounded or injured? Does anybody know? And what? And what? It does. It gets left behind. But what else? This is the most important part. Nope. Two other geese. Always two, never more than two. Two other geese leave the V and stay with the wounded or injured goose until either it dies or is healed. At which point the three of them fly with all their might, switching leaders, flying in a V to catch back up to the original V. The gospel, the church, the power of God living for an audience of one, realizing you don't really know what you would do under all circumstances and that it's not a set of rules is all about bringing everyone along who will come. And of course you love your wife and of course you love your children and you love the people you went to school with or at least you darn well better because if you can't love Christians that you've met, you don't love God. You say, but they sin. Yes, they do and so do you. But they've messed it up. Yes, they have, and so have you. Now, the church has certain practices in which we can finally recognize that we are no longer indebted to take care of a certain person who has essentially left our number. They've gone off in sinned. They don't want anybody around them or whatever. And we can deal with that another time. But the bottom line is the goal is we're all moving in the same direction like a murmuration headed for heaven. And it may take a lot of twi- twists and turns. We may, five years from now, we may not be able to meet publicly in a building. We have to meet in houses or in somebody's house because the law may not allow. We don't know. We may have a bomb threat against the building because we're living for Jesus. It can happen. You don't know. We've already had a pandemic that said that we shouldn't and probably couldn't meet together in public. You don't know if that won't happen again. I'm a, I am a mind to believe that that was the first of a series of... And we're not even done with the first one yet, but it's the first of a series of pandemics. I don't think it's over. And people were so afraid to worship God and to gather together with other believers. You realize that if if you can pull back from the body and not love the rest of the body, you have a real problem. And so if you can pull back because you think you're avoiding fellowship because of COVID... I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. You have an audience of one. Do what God would have you to do. If God is saying to you, you don't go to church because you could be risking getting COVID, fine. But God has not saying stop saying to you that you must love the body. So you should be going, the people that can't go and the people that do go and the people that sit there and the people that I sit near and the people that are in trouble, how can I help them? The people that are online right now should be thinking about how can I help the people that are in the room and the people that are in the room should be thinking about how can I help the people that are online? We have got to be the church. No church. No audience of one. No freedom. No humble realization that even you don't really know. And then I guess we're back to a set of rules. Which after all, would be easier, wouldn't it? It'd be easier, but it just won't get us where we're going. It's time we started caring about the people around us. and live for God and love and kindness even the people who are out there in the world who don't claim to be Christians who are doing terrible evil we should love them and wish that they would get saved and turn from their wicked ways and God can do it because when you have nothing left he'll be there and he will do I pray for you briefly. This has been our expose, if you will. We are freed by living as an audience of one, realizing that even we might not know ourselves and what we're capable of. Not living by a set of rules. We're freed in Christ. But to be freed in Christ is to function as part of the church and to love the people around you more than you love yourself. Stop thinking about how you can get ahead or what you can get or preserving your riches or spending your riches, enjoying your riches or... Making more riches or start thinking about people that are hurting and showing up to make a difference in their situation. Father in heaven, help us in a day when so many people are so alone. And some of them are our people. There are people maybe in this room who feel alone, who feel separated, feel distanced, they're injured, fallen away. And we have a tendency, when we see that somebody's injured or falling away, to let them kind of go away and heal and come back when they're strong. And that's not what you've called us to. Lord, help us lift up one another. Lord, help us be the church that we're supposed to be. For those who feel restrained, that they cannot participate in person, kindle the love and the fire in their heart, and if they can think about what a difference they could make can make, will make, should make, and how to make that difference in the lives of others who are the church. And for those who are here in person, let them care about one another and those who are joining online and those who are hurting. Let it truly be said of your people that they know who we are because they see the love we have for one another. You loved us so much. You demonstrated it so clearly. And we ought not spit on that memory. We ought not squander that memory. We ought not keep for ourselves certain blessings that you intend for us to share. Lord, help us in the midst of this trouble. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Your name be holy on the earth. Lead us not into temptation. Give us your Holy Spirit strength and power to destroy sin in our lives, deliver us from evil. We want to come to be with you for an eternity and to be found faithful doing what we're supposed to do now until that time comes. There may be somebody in the room who has not said, okay, I do believe there is a God. I do believe that Jesus came and died on the cross for sins and that He has a right to be my Lord and Savior and I want to give my life into His control. I want to let him be in charge of me. And I pray that you would speak into their voice, or speak into their heart, that they would hear your voice, and that they would say, during this song we're about to sing, yes, that's me, I want to live for Jesus. There might be somebody in this room that knows that they are a follower of Jesus, and they know that they have been more often than not living as a Lone Ranger Christian. Working it out themselves. Yes, trying to live as an audience of one, but realizing that they've been dismissing your commands to truly love others. And so they've been offending you. I ask you, Lord, to give them an understanding and an ability to repent and turn to you, peace, a plan to love others. Father, there may be somebody in this room that thinks that they're going to get to heaven by a set of rules before or after they've been saved. And they know now from your word that it's not about the rules. It's about permanently pursuing a personal presence of our God. And we want to be part of whatever you want to be part of. And we want nothing to do with that which you say is wrong or that we, you say we should keep away from you. Keep away from ourselves. Lord, help us as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. That's the praise team to come forward and lead us at this time. If you're making some kind of a decision today, maybe you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior while you've been here or recently, then you come forward at the time. And if you want to social distance, that's fine. you can come here and stand here. Uh, if you want me to pray with you, I'll do that too. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. I hope you've given some serious thought to what we're freed by and how freeing it is to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would ask you to consider what our obligations are, as we talked about last week, but to realize that we are indeed free. And so then, perhaps you'd want to reach New Heights and Jesus with us. New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church is in East Toledo at 255 Hepner. And we meet every Sunday morning, 1130 a.m. and usually Tuesday evenings at 630 p.m. for Bible study. Um, 7 o'clock for adults 6.30 for 18 and under and 7 to 8 uh, for adults and so then the kids will sometimes come in and sit in with the adults at the end to finish up the Bible study and so that's, that's us reaching new heights in Jesus perhaps you'd like to be part of us reaching new heights in Jesus if on the other hand you're listening to this podcast and it blessed you in some way in order to keep this podcast on the air please, number one, like it, follow it, share it and tell everybody about it. And this is the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ as they come to New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. And um, I know you're only getting a part of it because you're getting the Sunday services, but uh, praise God, he is at work in us and I hope in you. If you would like to give financially, then you may give by texting G-I-V-E to 419-419-0095. That's the word give, G-I-V-E to 419-419-0095. Set up your uh, credit or debit card and you'll be able to give directly to the church's general offering. Then if you'd like to give another way, you can go online on our website at churchdeleto.com. That's also where you can find a lot more information about the ministry and other ways you can get plugged in. Let's say, for example, you're a person in need of encouragement. On our website, there's a link where you can sign up to receive encouraging calls and messages um, anywhere from one to three times a week. And they're delivered by automated call on the one call now system. And so that's a great opportunity. If you're in the Toledo area and need groceries, there's a way that you can sign up for our pantry at New Heights online. Or if you need the groceries delivered to you, you can sign up for the Life Station delivery service of free groceries, free emergency groceries to anyone in need in Toledo, parts of Oregon, and parts of Northwood. So that's just an example, and there's a lot more there. We do need your help. I wouldn't say uh, God needs our money or even our time or our talents or our service, but we are together on mission for God, reaching new heights in Jesus, overcoming evil with good. And uh, if you want to be together on mission with us, you decide how God wants that to happen for you, and then let's get her done. God bless you today as you reach new heights in Jesus.